News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, you hear it so often when you talk about politics. Oh, the polls say this. Oh, the polls say that. Well, the thing is, not all polls are created equal. And we know from past elections that they're also not 100% accurate all the time. We've had some crazy elections where the result is not at all what we expected. Here in BC, we think back to uh, 2013, for sure, where people did not see those results coming. And of course, the American election in 2016 as well, where people go, what what happened? So how can you interpret poll results so that you can see where there might be an issue or you can find out exactly where there might be some things you want to highlight with a particular poll? Well, MapleSoft is a company that builds mathematic-based software used by NASA as well as the Canadian Space Agency. And to talk more about that, uh, we're joined by Karishma Punwani, who's a Director of Academic Products at uh, Canadian STEM Research and Education Centre, MapleSoft. Karishma, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. This seems like so timely, right? Because we're inundated with polls all the time. But do you think people often don't look closely enough at sort of the makeup of a poll? Yeah, um, you're right. We are inundated. There's a lot going on with the BC uh, election coming up and the American election in November. I would say, yeah, we have to do more. We have to get better at really kind of looking at the polls and considering, I would think one of the most important things is the margin of error and how that kind of allows us to make more informed decisions. I would say nowadays it's so easy to be swayed by headline predictions and to come to conclusions based on, you know, disinformation or misinformation that kind of plagues social media and other channels. And I think, you know, at MapleSoft, that's kind of the reason why we value the importance of math literacy and the role it plays in everyday life. Right. So the mathematics... Sorry, go ahead. Simi. I was going to say, so the margin of error, just to explain to people, is that little number that you always see sort of at the title of the poll, margin of error, they'll say like, oh, 3% or something like that. What does it mean? Yeah, so the margin of error is really, um, it kind of takes a look at that with that number, that plus or minus 3 percentage points, and you'll see the statement at a 95% confidence level. It gives you, let's say, the poll you're looking at gives you a particular result it tells you how accurate that result really is. So let's say it's, you know, candidate A is expected to win at 42%. Um, so that if it's a three percentage point, it'll be somewhere 39%. And then from that 42% and up those three points. Right. So you have to understand that even if it says it looks like they're up by four or five points, but the margin of error is 3%, how really much are they up? Exactly. And this becomes crucial when you're trying to compare different candidates to each other, right? Uh-huh. So it might look, the statement might say, it looks like candidate A is going to win. But when you consider the margin of error, um, you can say, like, hey, maybe it's actually too close to tell. Because if candidate A is a little bit lower and candidate B is a little bit higher, it could be tied. And so we have to really look at the numbers and be careful. So when you see a poll then, Karishma, like, what do you think? If it's like a 5% difference, do you think, well, that's nothing? Well, it's, it's really interesting because when you think about margin of error, something to keep in mind is that there's different types of margin of errors. So when I look at kind of the article that I'm reading or a poll, normally when you're looking at an individual candidate, the accepted rate is 3 to 4%. Mm-hmm. 
Um, when you're actually looking at the margin of error with respect to difference between candidates, this is normally double. So you would say six to eight percent seems to be, you know, the accepted rate. And then there's also a margin of error between the difference between two polls, as well as when it comes to subgroups and weighting. And so, you know, you need to really read the article and look at it critically. And if you're not sure, there's a wealth of resources online that you can use A, to calculate um, mm-hmm. the margin of error and actually see what that confidence interval is, or to even go online and check what is an acceptable margin of error. How do you tell then if this is a poll that we should pay attention to or a poll that you go, ah, it's not well done? Like what else do you use for, to make that measurement? Yeah, um, that is another great, great question. You know, how do you tell if a poll is reputable? And mm-hmm. I think here is where mathematics can help. So here are a few tips um, that I would recommend. One is to look at who conducted the poll. You know, if the poll was funded by an advocacy group or one that was affiliated with the campaign, you know, they likely have skin in the game. And so while the findings may be accurate, it's important to take the time to scrutinize the data. You know, another thing is to look at the target population of the poll. Polls can focus on voting age population, likely voters, uh, registered voters. And while the polls from these sources are valid, they can yield different results. So if you're comparing things, you know, keep in mind who is the target population of the poll. Another thing is the sampling method that was employed. So if the poll only relies on line-line calling or if the poll is an internet-based poll that requires people to opt in, then chances are that that's probably that sample method isn't the most reliable. Right. And um, another one that's yeah. crucial is where the results, you know, where the results weighted. So, you know, no matter how um, you sampled, what sampling method that you use, it's impossible to get a perfect sample that re- completely reflects the target population. And so what pollsters will do is they'll weight the results after the fact. And if you go and you look at some of the analysis, if the sample is weighted heavily for a particular subgroup, then there is a greater um, margin of error and the less accurate those results are likely to be. Right. So those are just a few tips. I mean, there's tons uh, of other things to check out, but I think those are my top four um, tips for now, when kind you of s- gauging whether a pool is reputable. When you say like, oh, like check how it's weighted, what does that mean? Yeah, so... Um, what happens is, let's say, you know, a poll is trying to look at um, the population. And so they'll have a sampling of, let's say, different subgroups, let's say women or students. But sometimes it's, it's hard to get a perfect sample that kind of reflects all the women in the population or all the students in the population. So what they'll generally do is they'll take, you know, the number of people, the number of respondents in that subgroup, and they'll try to weight the numbers based on the actual population. Right. And so you just have to be careful when they're doing that. I mean, all polls do it, but how heavily have they weighted it? Because there will be likely a bias in those numbers. Um, so, again, it's kind of why you have to be careful when you're reading the source of the information and then apply that critical thinking, that mathematics, just to make sure that, you know, what you're reading actually does make sense. Well, you know what? Excellent lesson this morning, Krishma. Thank you. You are so welcome, and thank you for having me, Simi. Well, appreciate your time. That's Karishma Punwani, who's a Director of Academic Products at the Canadian STEM Research and Education Centre called MapleSoft, kind of teaching us how math is involved in translating political polls. 
we get inundated with them all the time. Uh, but some of them obviously created a little more, I guess, equal than others. And it was a good lesson there to figure out what, what to look for uh, to make sure that this one, look the one that you're looking at, is the most accurate possible. Very important when we're talking about being in a provincial election and now potentially a federal election too. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning, who has an important story there. Some parents who really need your help this morning. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you know, this story of Jordan Nadir, the missing hiker, he's been missing since he was supposed to turn up for Thanksgiving dinner. And it's a story that I think we've all been following in the news and hearing about in the news. And I saw the family last night on Global News. and It just broke my heart yeah. what these poor people are going through. And I know that the father, Greg Nadir, he spoke to Jill Bennett yesterday. Listen to this. My wife and I are here from St. John's, and uh, as you know, our son Jordan has gone missing since uh, Thanksgiving weekend. There was a, a case open for missing person that was led by the Vancouver Police Department that started um, sh- a couple of days after that, and that search has gone on until uh, this past weekend, but that on the weekend we received devastating news from the uh, the VPD, that a decision was made to suspend search. Um, However, if there was any further information or clues that could move the case forward, they would uh, reactivate the case. So I guess my first observation there is that that's that's an awfully quick, short period to give up on a young man who is a brilliant, talented engineer, very resilient, very resourceful, certainly could go um, on more than four days or so in the wilderness um, because he was very well prepared with a tent, a sleeping bag, and water. So, yeah, uh, um, so have they given up after four days? But uh, as parents, um, we will not give up until we find our son. So anyway, they said uh, basically that it would restart um, if new information or clues were found. Well, we have found new clues and information, and we sent that several days ago. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had a timely response to that or any response, in fact. Um, the new clues that we have are that we have found uh, Jordan's white cap. A witness found Jordan's white cap and Oakley glasses on a point on the trail further up from where he was um, previously spotted by a witness. And uh, so that's really significant information at two different points, his possessions. So one would think that that is uh, new evidence and clues that the case should be reactivated. Haven't heard back. Um, And so we are in a life and death situation with our son, obviously. And we can't, you know, we can't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for this. So we've we've started now with uh, uh, working with a um, other organizations and starting dr- drone sweeps ourselves. Um, one thing I did want to mention with the search that was done, it was really a very small portion of the area that was covered with thermal imaging helicopters, dogs or drones, very right. small proportion. So there's still a lot more work that uh, I think could have and should have been done. So we're, we're starting it ourselves. We have an incident commander command center here. My wife and I are operating this out of a hotel room at the Manning Park Lodge. Um, and we're, we're starting this ourselves without the Vancouver Police Department help. 
That's Jordan Naderer, their steer, or sorry, that's Jordan Naderer's dad, I should say, Greg Naderer, still looking for their son. Nikki, this is so sad that they feel like they're not being supported by the police here. Oh, Simi, my heart just absolutely breaks for this family. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for the VPD. I I really and sincerely do. But I could not imagine what it would be like to have a family member of mine missing who I think might still be clinging to life somewhere out there in the wilderness and knowing that every hour could be the difference between life and death. And the police say, yeah, we've got some information and, and we can give it to you for your own private search now. But we're putting together a report and the paper paperwork isn't ready yet so we'll get it to you when we're done putting together this paper oh, this report it would oh i just again i have respect for the vpd i truly do but this i just feel so horrible so horrible for this family well and they've come all this way right they're from newfoundland and they're and they're just, they must feel like they're getting no help out here at all Yeah, I think that's where they're left with, you know, the mother said that she flooded the Vancouver Police Department for three days with phone calls, just desperate to get the information that they have. And the response that she received was Tuesday morning. And it was only then they said, yeah, the case will be reviewed. And the Vancouver Police, even on Tuesday, said that search and rescue crews, they're compiling hundreds of hours worth of search information onto a map, and they'll provide the to the family once that's ready. And they said, well, the delay is due to the size and volume of the file, but keep the family in the loop because they want to search now. They want to search every single moment of the day. They want to be out there looking, not waiting for you to say, well, you know, there's a lot of information, so we'll get it to you when that file well, is ready. And with, like the dad says, every second counts here. If he's out there yeah. waiting to be rescued and you're what, compiling your map and you got to wait till the map, that just seems like a ridiculous answer. If that were my child, I can see why they would be so frustrated. Uh, Nikki, thank you for for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've worked so hard in this province and so many people have made sacrifices like not seeing their loved ones to try to help keep people safe in long-term care homes. But we also know that there are still outbreaks and the numbers are still going up. So there are still plenty of concerns out there. And now to add to that, there are concerns about the delays in COVID-19 testing. Well, to talk more about what is going on, joining us now is Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks for being back with us. Uh, good morning, Simi, and thanks for having me on to talk about uh, something that is uh, a concern for us. For yeah, sure. What is going on? What kind of delays are we talking about here? Well, there's uh, uh, not just delays, but there's a bit of an inconsistency that we see happening in long-term care outbreaks in that when there is a positive case identified, uh, in some cases, all the staff and, and residents are tested, uh, and in other cases, they're not. And so we're uh, I think there's a level of confusion out there, and it seems to me that we all recognize that long-term care homes are uh, the epicenter of, uh, you know, the worst effects of COVID-19. And we should be concentrating our testing efforts in this area so that we can ensure the residents are safe, that we can ensure staff are safe, and that we can open up opportunities for people to reconnect with their loved ones that have largely been separated from Mm -hmm. them for uh, close to eight months. So do you think we should kind of re-emphasize where the testing is happening to kind of make this a priority? Absolutely. Uh, You know, I know there are some concerns in terms of the uh, supply chain uh, of testing uh, materials, But I think if we were to really concentrate our efforts where we have the most vulnerable people, and I say vulnerable not just from COVID-19, but vulnerable to social isolation, 
Uh, I mean, we've got people who are living the last part of their lives unable in many cases, to see members of their family. And, you know, that's just heartbreaking. We've all heard the stories. We've heard families uh, in tears uh, being disconnected from their loved ones in care. So I really think, you know, all governments across Canada should be focusing their efforts on this uh, on this problem, and uh, we should see a more rigorous testing protocol in long-term care homes. Right, because I know we were ramping up testing, right, to anticipate for flu season, and certainly we're testing more people now, but do you think there still is a lot of room for improvement? Uh, absolutely, and as we have uh, the rapid tests come on stream, uh, I think we should be looking at long-term care homes as uh, the location to really use those rapid tests to ensure that if you're going in to visit your loved one, if you're going into work in a long-term care home, that you have access to those rapid tests. So we absolutely know that we're keeping those residents and those staff safe. Um, we've heard that these rapid tests will be used in rural and remote communities where they don't have the laboratory facilities for the, uh, you know, the current existing tests. But I also think that uh, there's a good argument to be made that these should be uh, used in long-term care homes as well. How close are we to that? And I know that in Alberta, they've actually said they're now no longer going to test asymptomatic people who've had no contact with somebody who has COVID-19 because they also have to refocus their testing. Yeah, you know, it is a concern for sure. And I, I don't think anyone really understands uh, why this is happening. I mean, we've, we've been dealing with COVID-19 for eight months. Uh, you know, the fact that we don't have a good supply chain and a good protocol and distribution of, of uh, tests, which would keep people safe, I think is one of the weaknesses of the COVID-19 response. And I would say that here in British Columbia, you know, we've had a very good response generally compared to other jurisdictions across Canada. But I still think the testing protocol is the weak link in our response here in B.C. So have you talked to the provincial government about this? I know it's tough because there's the election campaign going on, but any progress on this? Well, we have. We, we uh, have discussions with the Ministry of Health every week. Uh, I have discussions with the seniors advocate at least once a week. So we have brought up this concern. Uh, and I know that the uh, seniors advocate is uh, thinking about this as well. And, you know, we're looking forward to her survey of, of families and, and residents of long-term care and assisted living, which will be coming out relatively soon. Because, you know, people are feeling that they are separated from their loved ones. And mm-hmm. I think this would be a good tool to provide confidence uh, in um, in the people who work in long-term care, that they're not going to be subjected to, uh, to, to the virus coming in. And certainly confidence to families that they're not putting their loved ones in danger when they provide those, uh, those visits is so critical for quality of life. Now, I can understand for visitors how this would be great, but how do you make it work then, Terry, for people who work in long-term care homes? Like, how often would you test them to make sure that they still don't have the virus? Well, you know, in a society where we can test NHL hockey players twice a day, uh, it seems to me we should be able to test people looking after our loved ones in, in care uh, at least, you know, once a week or, yeah. uh, or even more often. So, you know, I think it's just the priorities. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. No, that's a great point. You're right. So when we want to throw our efforts at something, we are able to do it. Absolutely. I understand, you know, the NHL and these Sports teams have lots of money to throw around, but it shows that it is possible to do. And so, you know, if if we care about our seniors in care, um, I, I think they're worth the investment.
So is that something you're hoping that once we get this election done, that it can be more of a priority maybe in the next couple of months? I hope so. And, you know, I, I know that the people at the ministry, I know the people in public health, I know the people in the seniors advocate office are all concerned about people in care. Uh, I just think we need a greater discussion about tools we can use to keep them safe and to reconnect families. I think you made some great points. Terry, thank you. Thanks, Simi. It's Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. That was an excellent point that he made, that if we're going to work on rapid testing, if we are getting to that point where testing becomes more and more common, then he says that we should be emphasizing it in our long-term care homes so that you can go and visit a loved one there using rapid tests, that we can test the employees more frequently so that we can keep COVID-19 out of those care homes. And yes, great point that if the NHL can test players twice a day, if the NBA can do that, then why can't we do it for our long-term care homes? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. I think it's only fair given how much people have sacrificed not being able to spend time with loved ones uh, that, yeah, we focus our efforts on getting that system up and running for our long-term care homes. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, what is in a baby name? I love talking baby names, especially when we get the ones that just came out for the most popular baby names of the year. It's a little bit early this year, but hey, it's 2020, so we'll take it. Uh, Nikki Reitmeyer is back with us to talk about this. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning. I was going to say, is it that time of year already when we start seeing the top of the year lists? Oh my goodness, time has flown. I love best of the year list because mainly I look at it for, for books and TV shows and movies and that kind of thing, but I'll take the baby names. Let's talk about this. I always find the baby name list really interesting as well, because it's funny to think, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road, are these going to be the most common names that, that we see in our society? And so far, the most popular baby name of 2020 is Sophia for girls and Liam for boys. I, both, I think, very beautiful names. Sophia has actually been around for a long time. So from looking at this list, this is from Baby Center, by the way, Sophia has ranked number one for 11 years in a wow. row. A lot of Sophia's out there. Jeez, no kidding. Well, it is. It, I think it's a beautiful name. I really like those sort of traditional classic names. And I know people are getting really weird with the names they're giving their babies these days. We're getting pretty creative. So <laughs> I think it is nice to see a, you know, a really beautiful, really uh, sort of classic traditional yes. name at the top of that list. Uh, other names that cracked the top 10, Riley and Mateo. And Mateo, hugely popular and continuing to gain popularity, even if you look at the list of Canadian names for boys. So not just, you know, an American list, yeah. but when you look at the Canadian list as well, Mateo ranks as nice. number two, as the number two most popular name. So I Where think that another come from? really neat name. Like it has, there has to be a reason, right, for Mateo to suddenly drop. It was, it's been new to the top 10 this year. All of a sudden, people, the name of Mateo has become popular. There's always usually a reason for something like that. Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point because one of the top uh, names that could be for either boys or girls is Arya. And of course, that's from Game of Thrones. But Mateo, I actually don't know if anyone knows if there's a TV show character or a movie character or a comic book character with that right. name. I'd be really curious to to hear why. But yeah, good point. I can't think of it from well, anywhere. I know. For instance, co- the name Emma is number oh. four on the list, right, for most popular baby names. But that has consistently been in the top 10. And I can tell you that that is probably because of Friends. 
that when Rachel named her baby oh, Emma on Friends, the name right. Emma went to the top of the list and it has been there ever since in the top 10. That is right. That's so funny because for a moment there, I was thinking, wait a minute, none of them, we got Ross, we got Rachel, we got Joey, we got Chandler. Where was Emma? But right, she was the baby. She was Friends, the baby, of course. Of course yes. Well, and when we do look at these pop culture incidents, it's, it is interesting to see what people choose to name their child. For example, uh, Kobe has become a popular Not surprised. name this year. Yeah. I don't know about that necessarily. Uh, My son went to school with a Kobe. Shout out to Kobe out there. Oh, who would really? be about 20 years old now. Yes, I remember Kobe. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, I, the name Kobe's fine, but naming your child after an athlete that passed away in such tragic circumstances, I don't know if I'd necessarily want that linked to my child's name it's weird what gets into the public's imagination about this like look at the two big um female name baby girl names that were big losers in 2020 oh karen yeah and alexa yes not surprising right that do you want to name your child after the everybody's now saying alexa in their home no you're not going to name and yet i knew i remember a couple alexas that were in my daughter's preschool class like more than 20 years ago Uh, now it has become more unfashionable for alexa and karen well you can see why well, it's funny that you say that because for me, Karen, that was the one I got right away. I thought, okay, yeah, I, I know, you know, there's been a lot of jokes this year about, you know, that, that name Karen. Uh, but with Alexa, I thought, geez, why is that no longer a, a popular name in 2020? And yeah, it's because Amazon, because I guess people, you know, they don't want to be trying to call their child going, hey, Alexa. And the next thing you know, your home device is talking to you going, yes, what can I help you with? So <laughs> I suppose that's why that appeared on the list. Uh, other popular names for boys in particular, uh, Noah was number two, Jackson number three, Aiden number four, Elijah number five, and for girls, uh, Sophia again number one, Olivia number two, Raleigh was number three, Emma number four, and uh, Ava number oh, five. I the love the name Ava. Just love it, love it, love it. Don't you? Yeah, another beautiful, just a really nice, beautiful name. Now, Simi, yeah. are your kids happy with the names no. that you gave them? <laughs> I could tell you right now, like, I, my name is Simi. My husband's name is Loyola, which is a very Newfoundland, Irish, Catholic name. We have had to explain our names our whole lives, right? So mm-hmm. we named our kids something very simple. My daughter was named after my mother, very simple. Oh, very nice. uh, my son also has a very simple name. They hate their names and they're always harping on us about why'd you name us this like what couldn't you come up with something better and they don't understand the gift that we gave them nikki they are resentful that's so true you know no one's ever going to ask you you know how do you spell your name i know they don't understand again they don't understand you've given them a gift i feel like they're going to saddle my poor future grandchildren with names that are like you know different and i'm like you know this kid's going to be explaining that their whole lives but Anyway, we can talk more about that. People can weigh in if they would like to. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Well, earlier on the show, we were talking about baby names for 2020 because Baby Center, which is a huge online website for baby names, has already put out their list for the most popular names of 2020. Nikki Reitmeyer is back with us now. Hi, Nikki. Good morning. Yeah, and what we discovered was that Liam's number one for boys for the year 2020 and Sophia's number one for girls, but the name Mateo has been rising in popularity. Rapidly, yeah. But first year it dropped into or put into the uh, top 10 and it seems to be rising, rising, rising. So we were, we had a question. We were like, well, where did Mateo come from all of a sudden? Because there's usually a reason why, 
right? These yeah. names suddenly become popular. And I think I may have an answer for us. Oh, really? Yes. And this comes courtesy of listeners, of course. So thanks to you guys out there. They're so great. We we mm-hmm. muse out loud, Nikki, and the listeners respond. That's what happened. Oh. I know. <laughs> Don't you love that? So two I possible do. responses here. So first, uh, Gord had written me, and Gord said there's a character on the TV show Superstore named Mateo. Ever watch Superstore? No, I can't say I have. Right. So I thought, okay, well, I know Superstore has been around for like five or six. I think the sixth season actually premieres next week. So I'm like, okay, it could be from Superstore. But then I got another email, Ian, thank you very much, who emailed to say it's probably from the TV show Jane the Virgin, which is now on Netflix. And it is consistently one of the most popular shows on Netflix. And there is a character named Mateo on that show. And that, to me, made way more sense. Oh, that does make sense. You know, it's funny because we were pondering this and saying, usually when these names suddenly appear, it has something to do with pop culture, a TV show. And you use that reference from Friends when Rachel had her baby and named her Emma, that suddenly Emma became really popular. And like you said, it stayed popular ever since. So, oh, that does make sense. And isn't it funny, even though the show might be a little bit older, as soon as it appears on Netflix, Netflix, that's when we see a a resurgence in popularity. How interesting. I know. So that's usually where all those names kind of come from. Now, you had asked me about my name I spent a lifetime correcting people over my name (laughs) how to spell it how to pronounce it like you know in first day of school every year I'd know exactly when the teacher got to my point in the the roll call I would just put my hand up and say here because they would stop and look (laughs) at it and there'd be silence and so then I knew that oh I I think they finally got to me Uh, but what about you have you always been happy with Nikki uh, I have. Now, my, char- uh, my character, my name, <laughs> Nikki, uh, it, it's spelled N-I-K-I, so a little bit unique because it just has the one K. And my mother said that she named me after a character that was in the TV show Fame, if I'm recalling this earlier. Oh, I've only yeah. I had coffee this morning. Yeah. Uh, that I guess briefly there was a character named Fame or, or uh, sorry, named, named Nikki who was in the show or maybe for a long time. I've never seen it. Uh, and But she really liked the name. So she wanted to name me uh, Nicole is my real name. And then they've always called me Nikki because that's what she wanted based on this character TV from shows, a man. TV show. TV shows. I know. So yeah, technically people... I'm one of those babies named after a character from a TV show. Yeah, but so am I. That's the thing. The name Simmy was actually a popular Bollywood actress in the late really? 60s and early 1970s. So there are a bunch of Simmies right around my age. Actually, so if you run into another Simi, that's probably why that is. So that name became popular around then. In fact, I went, can you believe this, Cloverdale Junior High School, I was not the only Simi. There was a girl two years behind me actually named Simi. So what are the chances of that? It's funny to think that, you know, 30 years from now, there's going to be a bunch of kids sitting around going, yeah, you know, I hear my parents named me after some show out of Jane the Virgin. Have you ever heard of it? <laughs> I'm, I'm Game of Thrones. Yeah, my name's Arya. And yeah, I, I've never even seen the exactly, show before. But right? <laughs> yeah, that's, where, that's, that's where my parents said they got the name anyways. That's where it's going. Uh, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Uh, that's it for our name conversation. We were wondering about the name Mateo. Thanks to the listeners for helping us out with that. But you know what? Everybody has a story about their name. And if you want to tell me yours, you can email me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Do we need more mask mandates? I mean, if you're going to ride transit, yeah, they want you to wear one. Go into, I would say, the vast majority of any retail outlets out there, and you have to wear a mask. So, do cities now need to get involved too? Well, Vancouver City Council is going to vote on whether or not to make masks mandatory in city-owned facilities. They're going to have that vote actually tomorrow. Now, NPA Councillor Sarah Kirby Young introduced the motion last night, and she joins us now to talk more about it. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Zimmy. Why did you think this was necessary? Uh, I thought it was important because as we've seen COVID evolve and we head into the wintertime and um, we're into phase two now, the weather's getting colder, people are going to be spending more time outdoors, and also Vancouver has been reopening all of our civic facilities that closed back in March when the pandemic emergency was declared. So this seemed like the right time to do it, and I think we're hearing a growing body of um, medical professionals um, and, and science that is suggesting that masks are effective and they should be used as a precaution. So what kind of facilities are we talking about? Like which buildings would these be? So um, it would it talks about libraries, um, things like City Hall, Vancouver Civic Theatres, and our community centres. And of course, this would need to go to our partners at uh, the Vancouver Park Board, for example, because they have jurisdiction over the community centres. I see. Okay, so is that already not the case then? Like, I know some libraries are kind of open with limited service, or are you saying right now people are coming in without masks? There is no mask policy for these facilities, so yes, as a member of the public, um, you can um, go ahead without a mask, and um, I think it's important that we indicate that that's the expectation when people are visiting these places to help um, visitors feel safe, but also our staff. Okay, so then what is the support like for this? Have you talked to some of the other councillors about it? I think, well, the public support has been um, overwhelmingly positive, except for the demonstrators, obviously, on the weekend at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Um, But members of the public have been writing in um, and thanking me and saying that this will make them more comfortable in visiting facilities. I've also heard from frontline staff um, at libraries and community centres who don't feel comfortable um, fully in having to engage with the public and would like to see this in place. Um, I think the other thing is that we've heard from the Mass for BC group um, who put a letter together and they had to cut it off um, to get the letter in in time for council. And they had more than 161 medical professionals sign off on this letter saying that there is a growing body of evidence that masks are effective in transmission, preventing transmission and also the severity of transmission. So then do you anticipate this is going to pass then? Um, I don't know. It'll be up to my fellow councillors to determine that. I think that um, this council has been um, pretty good in taking preventative measures and being responsive to the COVID community. But uh, we never know uh, with this council how a vote's going to come down until it happens. Um, I'm hopeful that they will support it, particularly because we're hearing from our frontline staff that this is something that's important to them. Now, what did you think about the protesters? I know a lot of people, like they, it seems like it's, people make a big deal out of the protesters, but how do you view that part of it? Well, I mean, as somebody who is, you know, trying to support best practices here and suggest that we take every precautionary measure and principle that we can uh, to see large crowds gathering like that um, close together without any physical distancing and without masks is worrisome to me. It's troublesome. Um, I also think that they are not basing their comments on, <coughs> sorry, early early morning t- for me today and long council day yesterday. Um, I also think that they're not basing their comments on, um, on the growing science. And I think it's really important to look at that. We know that COVID is a new virus. It hasn't been with um, the community for very long. And um, the medical community is learning as they go along. And we see um, folks like Dr. Fauci in the U.S. who came out on 60 Minutes this week and unequivocally said, I was wrong. Masks absolutely do work um, and we need to employ them. So 
Uh, I think that they're denying, honestly, uh, the science, and I think they're denying common sense. So do you think most people, I think most people would accept this, right? I mean, we're used to wearing them now. We are. I think it's becoming much more common. People are comfortable um, with it. It's much more of a societal norm. Um, and I just think it's a good social, you know, to be a good sort of social citizen now. It's a good social practice because, you know, we're all in this together. Um, and what we do impacts everybody else. So um, if you think about your loved ones, you don't want them to be exposed. So why would you not wear a mask and, and you know, potentially um, do something detrimental that would impact somebody else's family or friends? You, you just wouldn't. All right, we'll see what happens on Thursday. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Amy. That is Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver NPA City Councillor. She introduced a motion yesterday at a city council meeting uh, making masks mandatory in city-owned facilities. It's going to be voted on tomorrow, so things could be changing. And, of course, uh, you'll hear in the news about how that vote went. This is Mornings with Simi. Is TransLink in better shape now than it was five years ago? That is the question up for discussion now that we've heard the TransLink CEO, Kevin Desmond, is going to be stepping down next February after five years at the helm of TransLink. So we thought, let's talk about the impact he has had now. So joining us is Francis Bula, Globe and Mail contributor who has written about this. Francis, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. Yeah, thanks. I know that there's a lot of discussion. Like, it used to be that TransLink was the easy punching bag, right? We talked about TransLink all the time. What did Kevin Desmond change? Well, one of the things he changed that he didn't really have much of a say in, but he walked into a situation where there was a liberal government that was elected uh, that started promising money for transit, uh, that the provincial government, which had never much liked TransLink all along, um, the then liberal government, um, you know, started cooperating with, and then he inherited an NDP government that also was very pro-transit. So those were two things that happened um, <clears throat> that really hadn't happened for anyone for the previous 16 years because the NDP had created TransLink. The liberals weren't crazy about it. And I've talked to mayors, not very, not very NDP mayors, like more on the conservative side, who said the Liberals just used it as a punching bag for, uh, you know, quite a number of years. So he was lucky in that he walked into that, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um, but he also um, really kind of turned around TransLink's image. Yeah. Um, you know, he was just out there in the public all the time. He was promoting transit. He was um, an advocate for it. He came across as a person who was kind of, you know, very can-do. We're going to get things done here. He hired uh, a big PR firm, Fleischmann Hilliard, to, you know, make sure that they were constantly having news conferences and sending out news releases about, you know, how well Translate was doing. I found that was a huge that was a huge piece of it, right? Where all of a sudden you had the CEO of Translink doing a lot of interviews saying we're going to fix those escalators and this is going to change and that and that was just something that hadn't happened before. No, like Ian Jarvis, from everything I've heard, he was actually a better manager than people gave him credit for, but he was not that comfortable in front of cameras. Um, you know, he he was kind of, uh, uh, I think he'd been the finance officer before, and he had that personality, like he just wasn't out there all the time. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and TransLink really just, it really took some hits um, while he was there, um, including the referendum 
that the province insisted had to be run, which just brought out everyone's negative yeah. feelings about transit yes. and TransLink. <laughs> so what now, though? Why is he leaving? What have you heard? Well, um, what I've heard is that he always said he was only going to stay five to seven years. I think he's got another couple jobs in him because his first job after he went through university in New York with a master's in public education uh, administration was um, it, it started in 1988 so no one's ever printed his age but I'd guess that makes him born in uh, you know 28 around then so he, he's you know got a few more jobs in him and he said he's going to the U.S. back to the U.S. to look for opportunities but what I'd really heard was his family always stayed in Washington State. They never mm-hmm. came up here. Um, he was having to travel, you know, um, he, he was traveling back and forth, and he was okay with that up until the pandemic um, when things got a lot more difficult to commute back and forth. And um, <clears throat> I think that's number one. And number two, he's taken TransLink through sort of the first big difficult stage of the pandemic, and now there's a second, you know, um, kind of slog for the next yeah. few years to go through. And if you were only planning to stay seven years anyway, five to seven years, you can see how you might go, okay, let someone else come in and right. take over this part. I've got a good foundation here. Um, and, and, you know, the next part is going to take longer than two years. Um, so maybe someone else should do that. Oh. So, But, you know, like I think... I, I mean, people have left TransLink under weird conditions. You know, Thomas Prendergast, who was oh, also yeah. from the States, he basically left after 18 months because he just felt like, I can't do anything with this provincial government. They just block us at every turn. I'm out of here. I'm going back to New York. It, you're right. Of course, I'd forgotten all about that. Uh, thanks for the lesson on this, Francis. Appreciate your time. Okay, great. Francis Bula, Globe and Mail contributor, has written about this, a lot about TransLink for sure, talking about the impending now departure of Kevin Desmond. And of course, now the questions will start. Who do they get to replace him to see the transit system through this next couple of years? It will be undoubtedly very difficult.